In addition to being one of the deadliest gunmen of the Old West, John Wesley Harden also had the distinction of backing down Wild Bill Hickok in his prime. And then there's the time he killed a man just for snoring. Or at least that's how the stories go. Join me today as we take a look at both of these incidents, as well as discussing Harden's encounter with the Bloody Bender family of Kansas, the time a belt buckle saved his life, and the lead-up to the infamous Sutton-Taylor feud. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza! Back in 1871, Abilene, Kansas marked the end of the Chisholm Trail. Not only was it where the Texas cattle would be sold and loaded onto rail cars bound for the east, but it's also where cowboys like John Wesley Hardin would blow off a little steam. And it's hard to blame them, right? After all, they'd just spent over two months in the saddle, choking down dust and performing back-breaking labor by day while sleeping just a few scant hours each night on the cold ground. By the time they hit Abilene, they was ready to have a little fun. Maybe even catch a few venereal diseases. Only problem was the good citizens of Abilene had recently hired themselves a tough marshal by the name of Wild Bill Hickok. Maybe you've heard of him. Hickok had only been on the job for about a month and a half by the time Harden arrived, but he was already very much a celebrity in his own right. Link down below for the episode I did on Wild Bill if you're curious to learn more. But needless to say, Harden absolutely knew who Hickok was, at least by reputation. And Wild Bill almost certainly would have heard about Wes's recent gunfight on the Little Arkansas. Years later, a guy named Fred Duderstadt, who was also in Abilene at that time, stated that Wes, despite his age, was already considered a hero by his fellow cowboys. Not only for his most recent actions, but for, quote, thinning out occupation troops and the state police. He had a reputation as the world's fastest man with six guns, and he also had the reputation for shooting in the head where it counted, end quote. Apparently, according to Fred, there was intense speculation as to what might happen if Wes and Wild Bill came together, and that folks had already taken to place in bets on who'd win in a showdown. It was inevitable that these two legends would meet up. Only question was when and which one would still be standing once the smoke cleared. In the meantime, Hardin took in the town, and it wasn't long before he found himself at the Bull's Head Saloon owned by gambler Ben Thompson and Wes's old pal from Brenham, Phil Coe. Story goes that the bull's head had a rather large mural hanging from the outside depicting a steer with a ginormous tallywhacker. People complained, so Marshal Hickok asked Coe and Thompson to take it down. When they refused, Wild Bill simply had the offensive bovine painted over. This didn't sit too well with Thompson and Coe, and by the time Harden came on the scene, they were still smarting over Wild Bill's intrusion so much so that they allegedly tried to talk Wes into killing the famous marshal. Guess they figured they could get the young gunslinger to do their dirty work. But to Arden's credit, he declined. Told him that if Bill needed killing, then they could do it themselves. Now, there's been a lot of talk over the years regarding Harden and Hickok's relationship. Unfortunately, almost everything we know about their various encounters comes from Wes's biography. And, well, let's just say he can't help but to contradict himself on numerous occasions. One minute they're friends and getting drunk and gambling together, and the next Hickok is plotting to assassinate him. It does seem pretty obvious, though, that West thought highly of Bill. He clearly respected the lawman, and it was important for Hardin that this admiration was reciprocated. According to West, their first meeting occurred over several glasses of wine as he regaled Bill about his most recent trouble with those Mexican herders. 
In turn, Hickok produced a warrant for Wes's arrest and stated, Young man, I am favorably impressed with you, but don't let Ben Thompson influence you. You are in enough trouble now, but if I can do you a favor, I will do it. Okay, fair enough. With that, to quote Harden, they departed as friends. A few days later, Wes was in a saloon getting rowdy when Hickok made yet another appearance, telling him and his compadres to quiet down. Then, noticing that Harden was still wearing his revolvers, Hickok added that he would need to either take them off or get the hell out of town. When Wes replied that he would do neither, Hickok jerked iron and told him he was under arrest and to hand over his guns. Acting like he was doing just as he was told, Harden slowly reached down and unholstered both revolvers, holding them out to Hickok butts forward. Just as Wild Bill went to reach for him, quick as lightning, Wes spins and cocks both pistols with the barrels aimed straight at Hickok's face. I told him to put his pistols up, which he did. I cursed him for being a long-haired scoundrel that would shoot a boy with his back to him, as I had been told he intended to do with me. He said, Little Arkansas, you have been wrongly informed. You are the gamest and quickest boy I ever saw. Let us compromise this matter and I will be your friend. Let us go in here and take a drink, as I want to talk to you and give you some advice. End quote. And once again, per John Wesley Harden, the two men stepped inside the Applejack Saloon for a long talk, and just like before, they parted as friends. But did this really happen? Well, if it did, while Bill certainly never mentioned it, although I will admit I can understand him remaining mute on the subject. Hickok biographer Joseph Rosa doesn't seem to buy it, writing, quote, Hardin does not explain how Hickok was supposed to put down his own pistols in order to relieve him of his. Far more likely, Wild Bill would have shot him at the first move. Until Hardin's life was published in the 1890s, the incident was unknown. Certainly, none of the old-timers in Abilene ever credited Hardin with any such feat. The only sensible conclusion is that the showdown never happened, and if it did, it was not as described. Wild Bill had been dead a long time when Hardin wrote his book, end quote. That said, Wes's cousin Gip does somewhat back up his claims, stating that although he never heard Hardin say anything about the border roll incident, he did indeed at some point back Hickok down. Sadly, Gip didn't offer up any additional details. A separate yet relevant story was recounted by Babe Moy, a cowhand who helped Wes herd all the steer out of Texas. According to Babe, they were in a saloon one day as Hardin began playing with his revolver. Next thing he knows, here comes Wild Bill, just walking by and casually telling Wes to put his gun up before he accidentally hurt someone. John Wesley complied, no questions asked, and no attitude given. So I don't know, man. I do kind of like what historian Leon Metz had to say about the subject when he wrote, quote, Hardin's whole life was an affirmation of who he was and what he aspired to be. Backing down Wild Bill Hickok was the consummate juncture thus far in his spiraling, man-killing career. Hardin had arrived. Until now, he had faced dregs and toughs, people for the most part hopelessly outmatched. Killing had been easy. Hardin had fired and walked away. A dead Hickok would have proven nothing except perhaps that Hardin was lucky. A live Hickok would know for the rest of his life who was the better man. Hardin realized even before he entered Abilene that he would never depart without a Hickok showdown, that he would never vacate the town without knowing in his own mind who was the better man. How and when it would take place, he never realized until the second it happened. When he looked across those twin barrels into the unflinching gray eyes of Hickok, Wes Harden knew that he had won. And furthermore, he knew that Hickok also knew he had won. It was over. Nothing remained to be proven. 
As for Hickok, he had nothing to prove anyway. The long-haired marshal probably shook his head, shrugged his shoulders, and never gave the incident a second thought. End of quote, and well said. By the way, if you're interested in a deep dive on all things John Wesley Harden, I would urge you to not only read Harden's autobiography, The Life of John Wesley Harden, but also Mr. Metz's book, John Wesley Harden, Dark Angel of Texas. I did lean heavily on both when researching this series, and you can find links down below if you'd like to check them out for yourself. So yeah, maybe Wes and Hickok did have some type of confrontation. I think that is very likely. Maybe it went down exactly as Harden claimed, and maybe it didn't. As soon as I can get my hands on a time-traveling DeLorean, I'll head back to Abilene and let you know what I find out. Assuming I survive and don't die of the clap. Till then, what do you think? Send me an email, josh at wildwestextra.com, or leave a comment. I'd love to know your thoughts on the matter. And by the way, that little trick that Harden allegedly pulled is known as the border roll. If you're not really sure what I'm talking about, you can see Clint Eastwood performing one to perfection in the outlaw Josie Wells. Now, later on that very same evening, after the supposed Hickok incident, Harden was enjoying dinner when several men stepped inside the restaurant, cursing the state of Texas and everybody who came out of it. Upon hearing this, and being the good Texan he was, West stood and approached the group, looking one of the men dead in the eyes and calmly stating that he was a Texan. And I reckon that's all it took. The loudmouth and Harden both pulled guns at the same time and began shooting, but they both missed. At least they missed each other. In all actuality, one of Harden's stray rounds struck another customer in the arm. At this point, his opponent ran out into the streets, so Harden followed. And this time, his aim was true. Harden squeezed the trigger again and put a round square into the man's mouth, blasting out several of his teeth out the backside of his head. Right at that exact moment, a deputy came jogging up, so Wes hopped on a horse and made his way out of town. Guess maybe he didn't want to try his luck with Hickok twice in one day. By the way, it's worth mentioning that Harden was still gainfully employed, believe it or not. Many of his fellow cowhands had returned to Texas, but he agreed to stay on and look after the herd till it got sold. And it's with the herd, camped on the Cottonwood River, about 35 miles on the outskirts of Abilene, where he sought refuge after this latest shooting. Now remember, Harden's previous slaying of those Mexican vaqueros a few weeks prior really helped to elevate his status, especially among his fellow Texans. And once West was in camp there on the Cottonwood, he'd get propositioned by several prominent cattlemen. Apparently, a guy going by the name of Badino had recently killed Texas cowboy Bill Cochran, shot him in the back, and those cattlemen wanted Harden to pursue and, if possible, apprehend the murderer. Wes agreed on the condition that they write letters of introduction to any large herds he might encounter along the Chisholm Trail. This was just to ensure he'd be able to draw on supplies and fresh mounts as needed. With these letters in tow, Harden and a companion named Jim Rogers soon departed. A little ways down the trail in the town of Newton, they linked up with the dead cowboy's brother, John Cochran, and his buddy Hugh Anderson. And they continued traveling south, until finally they caught up with Bedino in a saloon down in Sumner City damn near at the Texas border. Wes commanded Badino to surrender, but he went for his guns and that was all it took. According to Harden, quote, I fired at him across the table and he fell over a dead man, the ball hitting him squarely in the center of the forehead, end quote. On the way back north, Wes and the others stopped again in Newton, Kansas, and before they left, they got drunk and shot up the whorehouse. Now just a couple of interesting side notes before we continue. That Hugh Anderson guy I mentioned a moment ago, who was riding with Harden and the others, 
Well, he'd return again to Newton shortly thereafter and take part in the infamous gunfight at Hyde Park, a.k.a. the Newton Massacre. This is one of the lesser-known gunfights of the Old West, but in my opinion, it's also one of the more fascinating. If you'd like to learn more, check out the link down below for the entire episode I devoted to the topic. Side note number two. When Hardin arrived back in Abilene, he was given a large sum of money, $600, from what he called a wealthy cowman. I know that doesn't sound like much, but back in 1871, 600 bucks was the equivalent of over 15000 nowadays. Now, West would later claim that he didn't want to take the money, but, quote, I finally concluded that there was nothing wrong with it, so I took it as proof of their friendship and gratitude for what I had done, end quote. And, of course, what he had done was kill Bedino. Kind of makes you think, was this wealthy cattleman truly just showing his gratitude, or was Hardin killing Bedino the agreed-upon outcome from the get-go? And if that's the case, this may not be the first time that Hardin was paid to take a life. Remember, after killing Mage back in 1868, his uncle gave him 20 bucks, which adjusted for inflation was more like $400. And I don't know about you, but none of my uncles ever gave me no $400. Historian Leon Metz speculates that Mage may have been Hardin's first killing for hire. The wrestling match, just a clever ruse, building up the case for justification. Can any of this be proven? No. Is this all purely speculation? Yes. Is it also fun to ponder? Also, yes. As far as Marshall Hickok was concerned, Wes would state, We went on to Abilene fearing nothing but God. I had heard that Wild Bill said that if I ever came back to Abilene, he would kill me. So I had determined to go back there, and if Bill tried to arrest me, to kill him. As it turns out, Hickok had no such intention. While he and Wes would have a somewhat tense discussion, in the end, he would neither arrest nor disarm the young killer. Matter of fact, just a few nights later, the both of them would spend an entire evening drinking and gambling together. Once again, though, this is according to John Wesley Harden. And once again, you gotta wonder exactly where the truth lies. Leon Metz theorized that if Hickok did indeed permit West to carry his guns there in Abilene, in direct violation of city ordinances, by the way, that the marshal could have just decided that a confrontation wasn't worth it. After all, Hardin was a cowboy, at least on paper, and as such, he'd likely soon be heading back to Texas. Also, Hickok had to contend with West's popularity. Jailing the young man would only serve to antagonize his many friends. Still, though, popular or not, there were just some things that even Wild Bill Hickok wasn't willing to put up with. Like, oh, I don't know, murdering someone for snoring too loud. Oh boy, here we go. This is, without a doubt, the most popular and oft-repeated story regarding John Wesley Harden. But is that what really happened? Did Harden really kill a man simply for snoring? Well, let's look at the evidence. According to the Abilene Chronicle, the dead man in question, John Cougar, had been sitting in his bed at the American Hotel, reading a newspaper, when a bullet came through the wall, striking him, quote, in the fleshy part of the left arm, passing through the third rib and entering the heart, cutting a piece of it entirely off and killing Cougar almost instantly. Neither this article, published just a couple of days after the killing, nor any of the other newspaper accounts would report anything at all about Mr. Cougar snoring. And you may find this hard to believe, but neither would John Wesley Harden. According to him, rather than snoring, Cougar had not only been wide awake, but also in the process of trying to steal his britches when Hardin opened up with that six-shooter. Per Wes himself, in his own autobiography, 
He was in his room at the American Hotel, minding his own damn business, and in the process of nodding off when, quote, I heard a man cautiously unlock my door and slip in with a big Dirk in his hand. Dirk, D-I-R-K. I halted him with a shot and he ran. I fired at him again and again and he fell dead with four bullets in his body. He had carried my pants with him and so I jumped back, slammed the door, and cried out that I would shoot the first man that came in. I had given one of my pistols to Manning the night before, so the one I had was now empty. End quote. His cousin Jip Clements was there with him, and they both ended up jumping out the window, hard and half-naked, and escaping out of Abilene as quickly as they possibly could. According to Wes, he was afraid that if Wild Bill caught up with him in what he referred to as a defenseless position, the marshal would, quote, kill me to add to his reputation. All right, so there you have it. But still, the question remains. If Hardin never fessed up to killing a man for snoring, and if nothing of the sort was ever mentioned in the local papers, then where exactly did this rumor originate? Well, as it turns out, a book, The Life and Adventures of Sam Bass, was published just a few years later, in 1878. And this book credits Wes Hardin himself, while being interviewed by a newspaper out of Austin, Texas, with saying the following, They tell lots of lies about me. They say I killed six or seven men for snoring. Well, it ain't true. I only killed one man for snoring. Now, from what I understand, no proof of this interview exists other than it being referenced in the book Life and Adventures of Sam Bass. And to my knowledge, the original has never been located. That said, there were other newspapers out of Texas who made similar claims, namely the West Texas Free Press and the Denison Daily Herald. So even just a few years after Cougar's death, somebody was talking about Wes killing him for snoring, if not Wes himself. So with all that in mind, here's what we know for sure. Charles Cougar was in his room, alone and in bed, reading a newspaper when he was killed. And we also know that it was Hardin who fired the fatal round. It's my opinion, for what it's worth, that Wes Hardin did not intentionally kill the man. I think he and Gip were about half drunk and attempting to sleep it off when Mr. Cougar began snoring. Hardin hollered for him to shut up, which is how Cougar wound up sitting up in bed, reading the paper, just in the attempt to stay awake and not further angering his murderous neighbor. It didn't work, though. Cougar fell back asleep and once again began sawing logs. This angered and inebriated John Wesley Hardin, so he grabbed his gun and sent several rounds through the wall. This was almost certainly done either as a joke or just in an attempt to frighten Charles Cougar. But once Hardin realized that one of his rounds was a little too true, that's when he and Cousin Gip made their grand exit through the window. But still, why would Wes fabricate the story about a knife-wielding cougar breaking into his room and trying to steal his pants? Well, you gotta remember, like I've been saying for the entirety of this series, Hardin was, according to him at least, always justified in these various killings. And he never busted a cap unless it was in self-defense. If he admitted to killing somebody on accident by blindly firing a revolver through a hotel wall, or even worse, just flat-out murdering Cougar for snoring, then this heroic noble image of his that Hardin was attempted to cultivate would be completely shattered. But nonetheless, people talk. And them streets always know the truth, right? Almost immediately following Cougar's death, the snoring rumors began. And as it turns out, this is one of the rare cases where the rumor is actually true. Only instead of Wes killing Cougar for snoring, I think he just accidentally killed him due to snoring. Either way, the man was now dead, and I guess Hardin figured he had pushed his luck with Hickok a little too far. Like I said, he and his cousin bid Abilene adieu and beat feet for Texas. So what do you think? 
Does any of this make sense, or am I just out of my mind? Is Harden's account true? Was Cougar really trying to break into his room when he killed him? I mean, I have had Cougars try to steal my pants in the past, but they weren't holding knives and I didn't shoot them. Or do you think Harden meant to kill Cougar? Do you think he fired those shots to the wall with the intent to kill the man? Email me and let me know. Josh at wildwestextra.com or leave a comment. But like I said, Wes and Clements were headed back to Texas, and they damn near didn't make it. Had it not been for Harden's sixth sense, there's a good chance he and Jip would have ended up buried in a rural Kansas garden. Now this story is absolutely batshit crazy. About a year prior, the Bender family settled on 160 acres just outside the town of Cherryville, Kansas. In addition to selling groceries out of their house, they also operated an inn for weary travelers. Only thing is, not everybody who checked in checked out, at least not alive. Over the course of about two years, the Benders would murder somewhere between 10 to 20 people and bury them either right there in their garden or in a nearby apple orchard. At least one of the victims was a child, and some of them were still alive when they were buried. So we're talking some real sickos here. Now, the Bender M.O. was seating customers at the dinner table directly in front of a large, heavy curtain. As the guests enjoyed their meal, one of the menfolk would quietly slip behind the curtain and then bash their skulls in with a hammer. Of course, nobody knew any of this back in the late summer of 1871, which is how Hardin and Cousin Gip found themselves seated at that very table in front of that ominous, aforementioned curtain. Evidently, Hardin's spidey sense began tingling something fierce, so he got up and switched to the other side of the table. Judging by the various descriptions I've found of the Bender family, it's next to certain that he and Clements didn't breathe easy again until they were several miles down the trail. The rest of the journey was mostly uneventful, and they arrived in Hill County, Texas by August of 71. Wes would visit with his Uncle Barnett for a spell and then join the Clements over in Gonzales. Now that trip to Kansas notwithstanding, Hardin was still very much a wanted man down in Texas, and it wasn't long before the state police caught up with him. A black officer by the name of Green Paramore got the slip on Wes as he stood in a Gonzales County store munching on cheese and crackers. Told Harden to throw his hands up, and just like Wes allegedly did with Hickok, he pretended to comply. Quote, I said all right and handed him the pistols, handle foremost. One of the pistols then turned a somersault in my hand and went off. End quote. So there you have Harden pulling a border roll just like he did back in Abilene. Only this time he wasn't playing around and actually squeezed the trigger. As Paramore fell, West turned his attention to another officer, a guy by the name of John Lackey, who was sitting on his horse just outside the door. They traded bullets, Lackey was wounded, but both of them ended up fleeing town in opposite directions. Now the killing of Green Paramore caused quite a few waves, especially among the black citizenry there in Gonzales County. Matter of fact, they were so outraged that there were even calls of martial law being declared, and the governor of Texas, Edmund Davis, ended up raising the bounty on Hardin's head to a whopping $400. A month later, a posse out of Austin came calling, but this time Hardin was ready. According to him, quote, I met them prepared and killed three of them. The rest returned sadder and wiser. By the way, that store that Hardin was in when Paramore tried to arrest him was owned and operated by a guy named Neil Bowen. And Mr. Bowen had himself a daughter, Jane Bowen, who Hardin had grown quite fond of. After a brief courtship, the pair ended up tying the knot in late February of 1872. At the time of the wedding, Jane was still just 14 years old. Man, <laughs> different times, I know, but as the father of a daughter, I just can't see any scenario where I would allow her to get married at the age of 14. 
and I damn sure wouldn't let her get married to a criminal. A couple of months after the wedding, Hardin would head south to King Ranch for undisclosed business. Yes, that King Ranch. More on this visit later, but on the return trip, Wes got to missing young Jane so much that he ruined a good horse in his rush to get back to her. Quote, I got to thinking that I had one of the prettiest and sweetest girls in the country as my wife, who would soon be looking for me for I had promised to be gone only 12 days. The more I thought of her, the more I wanted to see her. So one night about 10 o'clock, I started from Banquet for Gonzales County, 100 miles away. I got home at about 4 a.m., but forever ruined a good horse worth $250 in doing so. The sight of my wife recompensed me for the loss of old Bob. End quote and amen. Nothing says true love like damn near riding a horse to death just so you can get back to your child bride in a timely manner. That said, as pretty and sweet as I'm sure Jane was, it still wasn't enough to keep Wes at home for any real length of time. He was always out riding with the boys, and by July, he had set out helping some buddies of his drive a herd of horses all the way to Louisiana. On the way, they stopped at the town of Willis, where, per Hardin, some fellows tried to arrest me for carrying a pistol, but they got the contents thereof instead. I stopped a week at Livingston and stayed with my Uncle Barnett, Aunt Anne, and my cousins. We had a splendid time, and then I went to Hempel about the last of June. End quote. No sooner had he arrived in Hemphill when he began arguing with a lawman by the name of Sonny Spites. One thing led to another, and Wes put a bullet in Spites' shoulder. Figuring that it might not be a good idea to continue to Louisiana, Hardin fled 90 miles southwest back to his Uncle Barnett's place, where he hid out and decided to change his ways. And no, of course he didn't try to change, or even hide out for that matter. Rather than keeping a low profile, Hardin instead went gambling over in the town of Trinity. He and a local, Phil Sublet, took to quarreling in John Gates' saloon and Wes slapped the older man across the face before jamming a revolver in his ear hole. Didn't pull the trigger, though. Bystanders urged calm and Wes and Phil separated. Things soon went back to normal, but it wasn't long before Harden noticed that Sublet was no longer in the saloon. Peering outside, Wes spots Phil armed with a shotgun and heading straight back to the bar. Oh my. Quote, I appeared at the door with my pistol, and he fired one barrel of a shotgun at me. I thought I would kill him, but did not want to get into any new trouble, so fired at him, not intending to hit him, and stepped back. As I did so, a drunken man got up and caught me by the vest, saying that he and I could whip anybody. He had a big knife in his hand, and I told him to turn me loose, but before he did, he pulled me into the middle. By this time, Sublet had gotten in line with the door, and as we darkened it, he fired the other barrel of the shotgun at me. I knew I was shot, so I instantly took after him with my six-shooter, but he threw down his gun and broke for his life. I ran him through the streets and into a dry goods store. As we went through the store, I fired at him, but my pistol snapped, and I found I had my pistol with a broken cylinder spring. My man was still on the run, and I was getting weak from loss of blood. I fired again as he went out the door and the ball passed through his shoulder. I was getting mighty weak now, but staggered to the door as he ran, hoping to kill the man who I thought had killed me, end quote. Now, the reason Hardin was feeling so weak was due to the two buckshot that struck him just left of his belly button, passed right through one of his kidneys, and according to him at least, was lodged between his backbone and his ribs. Could have been a lot worse, though. When the doctors went to pull the buckshot out, it was determined that two more had struck and flattened themselves on Wes's belt buckle. By all accounts, he should have been done for, but like my mamaw once told me, sometimes God lets the meanest of souls stick around in hopes they might reform. 
Now, Hardin would be indicted for attempted murder, so gravely wounded or not, he wasn't going to tarry there in Trinity. He was moved, I expect, in a very painful manner, and convalesced in the home of a doctor over in Sumter, who just so happened to also be a family friend. Still, though, vigilantes were combing the area, so as soon as Wes was able to, he began drifting from one safe house to another. By late August, he could finally walk, but was still extremely weak and couldn't yet stand straight up. Ended up seeking refuge in the home of another friend over in Angelina County, and it was there where a posse finally caught up with him. Vowing to sell his life dearly, Hardin opened up fire with a scatter gun, killing one of his opponents and catching a bullet to the thigh in the process. Nevertheless, Hardin was still able to sit a saddle long enough to make a getaway. He wouldn't go far, though. Not only is he still recovering from his previous stomach wounds, but now he's got a fresh bullet hole in his leg. Arriving at yet another friend's house, Hardin realized the jig was up and sent for Cherokee County Sheriff Richard Reagan. Why Reagan, I do not know. Author Louis Nordyke, in his 2001 book John Wesley Hardin, Texas Gunman, wrote that Wes had known Reagan in the past and that the lawman was not a friend to the Texas State Police. So if that's true, I guess Hardin felt like maybe he could get at least half a fair shake while in Sheriff Reagan's custody. What he wasn't counting on was catching yet another bullet. Once Reagan arrived, they went over Hardin's terms of surrender, and as Wes was still laying back on a cot, he reached under his pillow to fetch a revolver, meaning to hand it over to the sheriff. Unfortunately, this action was misinterpreted by a nervous deputy who shot Hardin in the kneecap. Good lord. Now, I know this sounds almost unbelievable. It's the type of thing I normally am very skeptical of. But, spoiler alert, when Hardin eventually winds up in prison, an inventory of his various bullet scars was compiled by the staff. And sure enough, he had a scar right there on his knee, along with several others, including the thigh wound he just received and the scars on his side from that buckshot. So apparently, in addition to being deadly, John Wesley Harden was also just one hard-to-kill son of a bitch. The lawman ended up apologizing profusely for the negligent discharge, and Wes was transferred to a private room over in Rusk, where Sheriff Reagan's wife and son personally cared for him. Finally, by late September, Harden was healthy enough to travel, so they headed to Austin, where he was turned over to the Travis County Sheriff. And the accommodations weren't quite as nice in Austin as they had been back in Rusk, to say the least. Wes found himself in a one-room hellhole lacking ventilation that the Austin Daily Statesman described as being packed with, quote, a suffering mass of suffocating humans who strip themselves naked because of the intolerable heat and closeness, end quote. Be that as it may, neither the heat nor his wounds prevented Hardin from becoming a shock collar of sorts there in Austin. He exerted his dominance by force, victimized new prisoners, or fresh fish as he called them, and he wasn't afraid to apply his iron-heeled boots if need be. After about a month or so, Wes was transferred again, this time to the jail in Gonzales County, which, in all reality, was just as good as setting him free. Hell, even the Gonzales County Sheriff Bill Jones was sympathetic to Hardin's plight. So it were in the fall of 1872 that a guard handed Wes a hacksaw on the sly. In no time flat, Hardin removed his irons and made his way out the window to freedom. According to his autobiography, Wes would stick around with his wife Jane for a little while, but by January of 73, he was on the move again, helping to drive cattle down to Indianola. What he failed to mention in his book, however, was that Jane's brother, his brother-in-law, Brown Bowen, had recently murdered a suspected state police spy by the name of Tom Heldman. 
The victim, Heldman, was deep in his cups and stretched out under a tree sleeping when Harden's brother-in-law, Brown, just walked up and shot him in the head. Now, Brown Bowen would be placed behind bars for this murder, but in March of 73, Harden and about a dozen others would bust him out of jail. The same jail that Wes had escaped from back in the fall of 1872. Now, I do find it interesting that Harden omitted this from his book, as the Heldman murder would, in years to come, end up causing he and his family quite a bit of grief. As for Brown Bowen, he'd continue his lawless ways, and after raping a black lady and committing yet another murder, he'd flee to Florida. Now, don't worry, we will be returning to Mr. Brown. Like I said, his various misdeeds would have long-lasting repercussions for Harden. But in the meantime, it looks like Wes, despite being wanted for several murders himself, was determined to settle down there in Gonzales County and become a respectable cattleman. Or so he claimed. Truth is, Hardin was more than willing to engage in whatever violent prospects happened to come his way. And as luck would have it, he'd soon find all the action he wanted right there close to home with the little something known as the Taylor-Sutton feud. But you're gonna have to wait till next week to hear all about that. Thank you so much for listening. Do me a favor, if you like what you hear, go on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. Send me a message. While you're there, feel free to click on the coffee cup icon and buy me a coffee or two or ten. You can also do this directly at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wildwest. Like I said, next week we'll be focusing on John Wesley Harden's role in the infamous Sutton Taylor feud. And trust me when I say things are about to get real bloody. Till then, try not to anger anybody with a shotgun, okay? Unless you've got a huge belt buckle. And don't go shooting any cougars. I can assure you their growl is worse than their bite. All right, till next week, adios. Okay.